Welcome to the tape ministry of Chapel Hill Presbyterian Church, whose mission is to present everyone mature in Christ. It is our desire that the tapes of these services and messages from God's Word will touch lives deeply and encourage a closer walk with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. If you wish to contact the church for any reason, please phone us at 253-851-7779 or write us at Chapel Hill Presbyterian Church, Post Office Box 829, Gig Harbor, Washington, 98335. Now may God richly bless you as you join the people of Chapel Hill in worshiping the Lord and listening to the good news of Jesus Christ. How appropriate, don't you think? Do you know what this is? You've never seen it in its collapsed state before. Set of bagpipes. We continue this morning in our series on the seven letters of the Revelation called You've Got Mail. And when we come to this morning's text, we notice a complete change of tone. Let's think back over the last few letters. When Jesus was speaking to the Pergamites, he was chastising them for their idolatry. The Thyatirans, he chastised for their immorality. Last week, the Sardesians, he chastised for their hypocrisy. So we've had idolatry, immorality, and hypocrisy over the last three weeks. It's a a real encouraging set of uh, themes for the sermon series. And everyone kind of wants to take a deep breath. Things change when we come to the letter to the church of the Philadelphians. Let's turn together to Revelation chapter 3, beginning with verse 7. And hear the word of God. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my commandment to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is coming that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have, so that no one will take your crown. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. And now, O Christ, speak to us. Our ears are open and we are ready to hear what your Spirit has to say. There are some who particularly need to receive this word, this gift, today. So may your voice be heard, and may our lives be changed, because we had ears to hear. For we ask these things through Christ our Lord. 
Amen. Did you notice that there's something missing about the opening to this letter? There's something different about this letter than about every other letter that we have looked at with the exception of Smyrna. Did you notice that? What is the difference? There is no word of reproach. In every other letter we have heard those words that we hope never to hear from Jesus himself. He says, nevertheless, I have this against you, right? And yet, when we come to the church of Philadelphia, we don't hear those words. There's not a word of criticism from Jesus for the church of Philadelphia. Perhaps it's because they were doing everything well, but perhaps it's because Jesus knew that they could not bear one more thing. For as you listen to the tone of the letter and you try to infer what might be drawn from it, you realize that the church in Philadelphia, the Christians in Philadelphia, were going through a hard time. Judging from the words of Jesus, they were facing... How, how would you describe the state of the church? What one word might you use to describe the church at Philadelphia? Might it be weak? Might it be weariness? Maybe powerless? Listen to verse 8. You have it there. Please look and underline this in your Bible if you have your Bibles out. He says... I know that you have little strength. Let's read it together. I know that you have little strength. The Philadelphian church was beaten up. Apparently, the, the Jewish community had excommunicated those who decided to become followers of Jesus. They kicked them out. And suddenly their religious roots were, were ripped from the ground. The spiritual community of which they had been a part kicked them out. They no longer had, had a, a home and a and as you read this text, you get the, the sense that it had completely taken the wind out of their sails. I love the bagpipes. I lived for two years in St. Andrews, Scotland, and grew to love the pipes while I was there. They are a precious reminder of a precious time in my life. And when we returned for sabbatical in 1993, we, we were there for a while. Uh, my wife and my nine-month-old, Rachel, and myself, we were there, and we lived in an apartment that was right next to an open field. And perhaps every other night or so, a pipe band gathered in that field to, to practice. And so Rachel was lullabied to sleep, often, several times a week, by the sounds of the pipes. Now, I know that there might be one or two heretics here among you this morning who do not find this to be among the sweetest and smoothest of instruments that God ever created. But to me and to the rest of us true Presbyterians, <laughs> it is a wonderful sound. Except, except there's one moment when even we Scots purists uh, don't find it particularly pleasing. When the piper quits blowing into the pipes and the last of the air escapes, it gives this plaintive gasping sound. Jack, I wonder if you could demonstrate the loveliness of that moment in this instrument for us. Isn't that glorious? <laughs> Under full air, the pipes are glorious, but they nearly weep when they run out of gas. And we nearly reap, weep when they run out of gas. It sounds like two cats in a bag. <laughs> the Philadelphian church had run out of gas. All of the wind had been sucked right out of them. Those believers in that town were under attack for their faith. They had been kicked out of their church. 
The doors had been slammed shut on them. Do you notice how many times the door imagery is used in this text? Why do you think that is? Because Jesus knew the doors had been slammed shut on these people. They had been kicked out of their own congregation. And they were powerless. They were powerless. He says, I know that you have little strength. I believe they were powerless in the sense that they had lost their position in society. They had no more influence. They did not have a voice anymore. They were nobodies. And I suspect that they were powerless too because anytime we go through that kind of a loss, that kind of a, an experience of rejection, you feel discouraged and despondent and depressed and deflated to the point that you don't even know if you could take another step. I think Jesus knew exactly where his Philadelphian friends were when he says, I know that you have little strength left. We had a minor emergency in our house this last week that, as I look back upon it in retrospect, kind of illustrated this principle of powerlessness to me in a couple of ways. A few, a few weeks ago, I was finally succumbed to the pleadings of the rest of my family that we would buy a new little cat. Uh, it was a free cat from a man who was just a wee bit tardy in spaying his own cat. And now they had 12 kittens to show for it. So we went and we picked up our free cat, and Rachel named her kit for Kit Cat. Very cute, I thought. And, the, and Kit is very cute, I must admit. Last week, though, we began to notice that little Kit uh, was really laboring in her breathing. And we also noticed that she seemed skinnier than she had ever been before, when we, skinnier than what we remembered her being. After a couple of days of this, Cindy finally took her to the vet. And that morning when I know, knew that she was taking her to the vet, I got a call on my cell phone. And it's a, a tearful phone call. And Cindy says, the vet says that Kit has some sort of a condition in her bowel. He is probably going to have to put her to sleep. And so I rushed home and we, and we did what probably every parent has had to do and figure out how you're going to break this news to your kid. We decided we, would, we needed to take it seriously. So we went to the school and we got Rachel out of school and, and talked about her little kid. And I sat there in the car with her as she began to weep. And, and I asked her if she would like to go to the vet and, and, and visit her kitty and say goodbye. And we're just dying, as you can imagine, and as all of you have when you've gone through this. When we got to the vet, we took a look at the x-rays and it was frankly amazing. Somehow her little diaphragm had ruptured. And all of her lower bowels had put, been pushed forward into her upper chest cavity. And that was why she suddenly looked so skinny. There was nothing left down there. Her guts had slid forward into her chest. And the reason that she couldn't breathe was because her little intestine was crowding her lungs. And I looked at this little cat, this pitiful little creature, and she was absolutely drained. It was all that she could do to take one heaving breath after another, after another, clinging onto life. That was one powerful image of powerlessness as she lay there gasping for life. The vet said, it's 50-50. I can do surgery, but I can't be sure that she'll survive. Now, men, you know what my first instinct was, don't you? <laughs> wrong, wrong choice. I'm thinking, okay, this cat is a few weeks old. We have like two weeks of investment in her life. It's not like we've developed years of relationship with her. <laughs> and we're already talking about performing a major surgery 
with no reasonable certainty of success. And I looked at this heaving little kitty, and I looked like at these x-rays, and I thought there is only one reasonable thing to do. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> what did he say? Pay the money. Pay the money. <laughs> Then I went to tell Rachel my decision. And she looked at me with those tearful, hopeful eyes. And I discovered a new kind of powerlessness. <laughs> and I knew I didn't have any choice. So I told the vet to perform the surgery. I am pleased to say with a couple of subsequent procedures since then. <laughs> That little kid is still with us, though she is not out of the woods, and I am now into my free kitty for about 500 bucks. <laughs> Ever feel that way? Ever feel like life was squeezing in on you so desperately that you could hardly breathe? Ever feel like you were stuck between two bad choices and either way you went it was going to be difficult, the wrong decision, and you had nothing you could do to influence the outcome of it? I know you have and I know I have. Maybe for some reason you feel as if a door has been slammed in your face. Perhaps it was your marriage. A marriage that you've been fighting to hold together, but it appears that all hope is gone. We heard from one woman in our congregation this morning who went through that time, and many of you have. I got an email last week from a young man who was in my youth group in Bakersfield. His wife has decided that she does not love him anymore. And she has left him, and she is dating several other men. And he is fighting to hold on to his marriage, but the reality is beginning to sink in. His marriage is likely over. This door has slammed shut. And my buddy, my young friend, tells me that he feels like the life has been sucked right out of him. For you younger people, and maybe not so young people, maybe it was the door of popularity that has been slammed shut in your face. You are not in the in crowd, at your club, in your, your area where you live, in your school. And you would love to be, you would love to be one of the accepted persons. You would love to be welcomed in, but for some reason, you don't look right or talk right, you're not cool enough, and you're, you're out. I remember what it was like to be on the outside and kind of want to be popular, and you weren't. And it sucks the life out of you. Maybe it was the door of your career. You just found out you don't have a job anymore. And ahead of you lies the uncertainty of a new career and you are a middle-aged man and you feel absolutely powerless. In every age, Christians have faced a sense of powerlessness, of rejection, of failure. On this very day, tonight, All Saints Eve... In 1517, in a town called Wittenberg, Germany, Martin Luther nailed 95 theses on the door of the church. They were 95 points that he wanted to debate. All Luther wanted to do was clean up some of the abuses in the Roman Catholic Church. He ended up being excommunicated. Like our friends from Philadelphia, he was kicked out of the church that he wanted to clean up. And he lived as an outlaw for the rest of his life. John Knox, the father of Presbyterianism, was captured in St. Andrews at the castle there. 
And he was clapped into chains as a galley slave on a French slave ship for 18 months because of his faith. John Calvin was begged to come to Geneva. They said, we want you to come and lead us into a new way of understanding what it means to be a people of God. So he came and he did that. And because he did the very things they asked him to do, they kicked him out. And suddenly he was ostracized from the town that had once begged him to come. John Huss, John Wycliffe, virtually all of the reformers of the church experienced terrible times of rejection, even to the point of death, as is the case of Huss. His name means goose in Czech. And the expression, your goose is cooked, comes from the fact that John Huss was burned at the stake after he was found to be a heretic. Luther was so depressed at times that it made him literally sick. He had insomnia, he was constipated, he was a mess, largely because of his depression, his sense of rejection and powerlessness. There is not a soul here this morning who has not or will not go through a time when Jesus says to them, I know that you have little strength left. Right? For you young people who think you might be immune, just stick around. Your time will come. Oh, that we might hear the second half of Jesus' words, the second half of that sentence. Look at it. Yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. I know that you have little strength left, yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. Jesus promises, makes a promise to us and a challenge to us weaklings in our text this morning. The promise comes in verse 8. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. Can you see why that would be a significant promise to the people of Philadelphia? Why did he promise an open door to no one else? Because it was the people of Philadelphia who faced the shut door, the closed door, the barred door of rejection. Because the door to their religious community, to their spiritual roots, had been slammed shut on them and they were spiritual exiles. And Jesus says to them, I know you are homeless and powerless and weary because of what you have faced. But look, I offered you a new home. I offer you my kingdom, and I have propped the door wide open for you, and whatever door I open, no one can shut. Unlike what you have experienced here in this community, no one will ever shut this door in your face. That's the promise. And his challenge comes in verse 11. Take a look. He says, I am coming soon, and so what? What's his challenge? Hold on. Say it. Hold on. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Hold on to what you have. One of my favorite expressions is hang in there. Don't give up. Hold on, Jesus says. I know that you're feeling rejected. I know the doors of life have been shut in your face. But I'm holding, uh, holding open a door for you and I challenge you just to hold on. Hang in there. Don't give up. Cling to what you know. Cling to what you believe. Is our tradition on St. Andrew's Sunday to celebrate the lives of those members of our church who have gone to the Lord before us. This has been a tough year for us at Chapel Hill, hasn't it? We have said goodbye to some dear, faithful saints. Some of them, as they drew near the end of their life, grew weary. They were tired, they were powerless, exhausted. And frankly, some of us who stood by them and prayed for them and believed for a miracle on this earth. Some of us grew weary 
and powerless and exhausted too. And yet to them, those saints, and to us, the words of Jesus ring out of this text. He says, I know you have little strength, but behold, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. And through that door, our friends have gone. They have discovered the truth of what Jesus promised. And we who remain behind, we who have yet more work to do on this great earth, we hear Jesus saying to us, and I know you are exhausted. I know you have little strength, but don't you dare give up. Don't you let go. Don't you lose heart. You hold on to me and to my promises. And I will never, ever, ever fail you. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, after we have been reproved by your word for immorality and idolatry and hypocrisy, this is a gracious gift to us. A gracious gift to pause for a moment and allow ourselves to admit that we are weak at times and we desperately need your grace and your strength. Thank you that you see us for what we are and love us just that way and reach out to us with a word of encouragement. Father, I do not know who this morning needs to hear these words, but I know they are here. And I pray that for those who are losing hope, who feel like every door has been slammed in their face, who have no place to turn, no one to turn to, may they turn to you and discover the door to your kingdom wide open, barred open, and hear your voice calling to us to hang in there, hold on to the truths, the promises that come in life with you. Hear us now, O God, as we celebrate the lives of those saints who have ended their labors and enjoy their blessing in your presence. For we pray these things through Christ our Lord. Amen. As you hear the voice of your beloved Red, someone with whom you would identify, would you stand and remain standing for the reading of the entire necrology? Emma Goodman. Mary Lamb. Edward New. Bell Smith. Doris Thompson. Roy Shadbolt. Idabel Dixon. Bessie Mitz. Henrietta Mallory. Alonson Snow. Frida Pedersen. Mabel Colby. Edwin Kimball. Lydia Moran. Sarah Cook. Frank Goodwin. Mary Rudy. Thomas Stoddard. Reuben 